Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. This feels like Groundhog Day saying that it's Monday and the country's waking up to this massive hangover. We have a pandemic that has killed 200,000 Americans, an economic downturn. We have wildfires, this increasingly vicious campaign, the prospect of a contested election, and now maybe a looming constitutional crisis. And over the weekend, well, you know what happened if you went to if you went to bed too early on uh, on on Friday. Uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and the country raced right past a decent interval of respect, right to political civil war. I mean, this was this is really a, a sign of the times. There was barely even a a just that reasonable pause of hey, you know, in the first hour, can we at least talk about? Uh, this woman's contributions and who he and who she is and what she has done and treat her like a, an actual human being. There was once was a time when we would have done that. Now, I don't even think Mitch McConnell waited an hour before he announced that they were going to uh, fill fill the seat. And of course, there was uh, Ned Ryan, the Trumpist, who went on Fox News and you know barely within an hour of the news breaking said, "This is an opportunity. We have to seize the moment." And because everything is classy these days, uh, there's actually already a, a, a T-shirt out there that's being pushed by the Trump campaign. Fill that seat. So joining me to discuss all this is our political columnist, Amanda Carpenter, who has been very busy this weekend. Amanda, thanks for joining me this morning. I appreciate it. Hey, how are you doing? Well, I mean, hungover. What can I say? What can I say about all of that? The only good news is we're, we're like 43 days out from the election, which is actually getting pretty close. That's that's uh, that's a pretty remarkable number when you think about how how long this it feels like it's been hanging over us for so long. But six weeks from tomorrow is Election Day. Doesn't Friday already seem like a long time ago? I gotta tell you, I was having the best Friday with my kids. They, you know, came home. We had a nice dinner. They wanted to have a campfire outside. We actually had dry wood, which is a rarity. We did s'mores, came back inside, washed up. And my son was like, Mommy, if you come in bed, I want to read to you. I mean, the, the best night. So I'm laying there with him in bed. He's like seven. He's super snuggly and adorable. I'm kind of drifting off to sleep because we go to bed really early. And my husband comes in and he says, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? He said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. And I just said, you know what? I don't know where my phone is. I'm not going to find it. I'm just going to think about this tomorrow. <laughs> because you knew everything had changed. Again, this is the October surprise in September as voting is already happening. And we're we're right back in it. And I feel, Charlie, like we are we are back in 2016. Because if you think about how Donald Trump corralled the reluctant Republicans to his side. The people like Ted Cruz, who tried to destroy his convention, called him a pathological liar and all the rest. The way that Donald Trump got Republicans to throw all their principles away was to say, I have a list of judges. This is the court. Yeah, no, this, this is, is hard. This is the bargain. You, you give me a pass on everything because I will give you judges. And he has. He gave two conservative judges. And now here we are back in the fall of 2020, right back where we started. And we're watching all the Republicans throw their principles away. You know, who cares about the hypocrisy? We're going to get what we want because this is yeah. this is the purpose of Donald Trump. This is Trumpism. It's raw politics and power. Principles be damned. 
Yeah, a couple of data points. I want to I want to come back to this in a little while. I mean, a couple of data points that I mentioned in my newsletter this morning. Uh, there was a poll over the weekend showing that uh, 62% of Americans think the vacancy should be filled by the winner of the November election, which is kind of, you know, Biden's position is like, okay, you can nominate somebody, but um, let's not have a vote for the election. So 62%, that's, that's one data point. The other is this kind of amazing story about this Democratic fundraising group called Act Blue. I'm guessing you're more familiar with this than I am. The big, it's a big political action committee. From Friday night to this morning, they, they say, they raised a hundred million dollars, which is insane amount of money. Now that tells me that this is mobilizing. Yes, the Supreme Court really jazzes up the Trump base and the Republican Party. No question about it. Hard to overstate. But that number tells me that this is also mobilizing Democrats in a way that Joe Biden hasn't done yet. So a um, lot, a lot of wild cards. So anyway, but before we we, we get it too much into the analysis, because you had a great piece over the weekend. You know, it's interesting the, the story you told, because I think this is going to be one of those uh, moments that people will remember. Where were you when this happened? You know, it, that, that, that that's that's how big a deal this is. And it's kind of funny you should mention that about Friday, because I remember Friday just being an absolutely beautiful day around here. Very, very relaxing. And I was actually, you know, had set the, the you know, set aside a couple of hours. I was just going to binge watch on television and. I'm I'm just, you know, about to go into the bedroom and I look at my my phone. And I get a text from my son, uh, my oldest son, who says, you know, I, I won't repeat all the words he used, but, you know, RBG has died. And that was the first I'd heard about it. And un unlike you, I was not able to put my phone away. So I spent the next, you know, three hours. You didn't I, sleep that night. You didn't go to bed on time that night. I did not go to bed and I didn't sleep that well either. And also then we woke up the next morning and uh, I put out a special Saturday newsletter. We had a special podcast. And I will I will say that the the, the folks from the Bulwark, we, we've just launched uh, the you know Bulwark Plus, uh, which we've talked about here, which is, an ex, you know, our expression, look, we're in the fight of our lives. We want to get bigger. We, we, we intend to be around. Um, we want to finish this fight. This is going to last a long um, no, a lot longer than this this campaign, and we've never really asked for money from from our our members and our supporters. And we're not going behind a pay, paywall. We don't want to have a, we don't want to have pop ups. We don't want to want to have ads uh, for the main site or for this podcast. But we are asking for people to support us, including you know for the for the newsletters and some of the new products that we're creating. But I I will say that over the weekend. Um, we put out a range of, of stuff and I was just, uh, just sort of going through all of that, you know, starting on Saturday morning because this broke Friday night and everybody just sort of was scrambled. And we had, uh, we had Jonathan last wrote this really powerful piece, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the coming political crisis, who really made the strong case uh, against a pre-election or lame duck vote because of what it would do for the legitimacy of the court. Um, we had constitutional expert Adam White, who wrote Save the Vote, Save the Court, also saying Trump should go ahead and make a nomination, but should delay the vote until after the election. And and then you on, on Saturday, you know, laid out the Trump GOP rationale for why they are not going to wait. And I want to I, I want to get to that in just a moment. Christian Schneider had a very different point. He makes the point that it would be a bad political move for Trump to push through the vote before the election. The, the election, it's in his interest to have the election uh, be about everything, uh, be a referendum on the court, because if he actually gets somebody confirmed, then basically all of the energy is drained out and he becomes irrelevant, right? He's basically meant, he's already assured that you don't have to worry about the Marxist revolutionaries taking over the country because the conservative court will throw everything out and he will have had three three nominees. 
Uh, Tim Miller also scrambled over the weekend and put out a special newsletter, which is really an interesting sort of meditation on the, the long-term dangers of a, of a tyranny of the minority, you know, asking people to imagine what it must be like to be 21 years old in this country. And if you were born in 1999, two of the three presidents in your lifetime were elected by minority vote and the long-term consequences of all that. And then Bill Kristol has a piece laying out Joe Biden's, uh, what his strategy is going to be. He said it's not going to be hard for Biden to present himself as the pro-RBG, uh, pro-Supreme Court, pro-Roe versus Wade candidate. Um, so, and of course, then Joe Biden also gave a, a speech yesterday where he pushed back on the on the court. All, all of that's a little bit of background. But, you know, before we get into to this discussion, Amanda, I, 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 something struck me over the weekend, <laughs> which is perhaps not original, but emotions have been running really, really high. And as you mentioned, there is that PTSD flashback 2016. I just think that people are there. Things really ramped up. I, one one of the listeners to our podcast, one of our fans actually tweeted out that she heard JVL say something on the podcast she didn't like. He said something nice about Amy Coney Barrett, said he wouldn't vote for her. Barrett wouldn't vote for her uh, because of you know the legitimacy of the court. But she tweeted out that she immediately deleted the bulwark from her iPad because she never wants to hear that again. So there, there is this. This is so 2020, isn't it, Amanda? That people yeah. really think if you if somebody if you hear somebody express an opinion you disagree with, you just decide you will never listen to them again as opposed to engage them. But but here's my point is maybe that was a good decision for her, because if you never want to hear something you disagree with, maybe you shouldn't be listening to the bulwark because we're going to have a range of opinions on all of this. And also uh, what we're about to do. And Amanda, you and I talked about this before the podcast. We're going to give you analysis right now. And analysis is not the same as advocacy. We're not saying this is what we want to have happen. But I do think it's really important to get into the mentality of the Republicans, why they are doing what they're doing and what their strategy is going to be. And your piece, I thought, brilliantly did that, got inside the head of Mitch McConnell and explained this dynamic, which doesn't mean you're cheerleading for it. So. Right. And they, yeah. And I guess, yeah. you know, we probably do have a good number of readers and listeners who came to the bulwark because we affirmed their view that orange man is bad, right? Yeah. Like we all agree on that, but our writers are still conservatives. And so what we can offer is the thinking and rationale and what motivates uh, those kinds of voters and people who are operating the government right now while recognizing the damage that is done uh, by Donald Trump. And so that's a discussion we need to have. We're going to have to have for a long time, even if Trump is removed from office, because the conditions that created Trump will still exist, if not in an even bigger fashion when he's out of office and you have a highly motivated base to oppose anything and everything that Joe Biden does. And so what the bulwark can offer is help finding consensus in avoiding some of the pitfalls that I do think we are already uh, seeing materialize 
with this nomination fight. Yeah, we we know we know where the mine the the mines have been laid been laid laid out there. We know where the minefield is. Okay, so th- for, there was a, a a brief moment where there were some people who thought, well, no, Republicans are not going to do this. Uh, they wouldn't ram this thing through. You have seventeen of them on record saying that they would oppose uh, filling the seat during an election year. I mean, Lindsey Graham was on tape multiple times saying, "You save this tape, I absolutely will not do this," and. Yet one after another, they have fallen into line. Lindsey Graham and it was it was Lindsey Graham. Lamar Alexander's fallen in line, and and this is what I want you to explain, Amanda, because nothing about that came as a surprise to you. No, not at all, because they've already accepted all the charges of hypocrisy when they accepted Donald Trump. They've been there, done that. They'll flip again like a pancake, and Lindsey Graham did that with with ease. Right. By saying, well, Brett Kavanaugh changed everything. The liberals were mean to him. Therefore, nothing matters. And I'm going to ram this through and have no no hesitancy about it. Right. And you can disagree with that. And you should because there's no principle at play at all. Um, But that is what they're going to do. And it's because everything about Donald Trump when they made this deal with him in 2016 was about judges. They said, we don't we don't care about how you savage my best friend, John McCain. We don't care about your affairs with the porn star or how you lied about it. We don't care about how you signaled to Russia for help in the election. We don't care because we want the judges. And I think we should unpack a little bit why the court matters so much to conservatives, because I don't think it is a lot about Roe v. Wade and limited government. But what has happened probably in the last 10 years, certainly since Obamacare came up, and this will play out again, mm-hmm. is that Republicans realize they're not they're not going to legislate anymore, right? Like we could be solving these problems with Obamacare and Roe v. Wade and everything else if they really wanted to legislate and do the hard work of passing laws. Hmm. Um, but everything is being outsourced to the courts, right? It's why the courts matter because they decide everything now because we've decided we don't do consensus building. We don't pass laws, right? We're not really going to overturn Obamacare in Congress and solve it there. We're going to outsource it to the court and we're going to pack the courts and have the court solve our problems. This is what Mitch McConnell does. It's why he, Mitch McConnell doesn't legislate. What grand package has he ever passed? He's outsourcing everything to the courts. That's why it's the only thing that matters. And of course, this is also the stopgap against all the things they claim to be af- afraid of, whether it's the Green New Deal, whether it's uh, you know health care. Any of that legislation would be at risk now with a strongly conservative court. Yes. So, so not only do, does is this a substitute for legislation, but it's also a substitute for winning elections because. What's what's interesting about this? I wonder what what you think about this. Would the intense? Would it be? Would the pressure be as intense to push this through before the election if Republicans, you know, didn't think that Joe Biden's likely to beat Donald Trump? I mean, isn't that part of it? Is that you got to get this done before you lose the election because you're going to lose the election? Yeah, and part of Mitch McConnell's calculation is listen. Look at all the money that the Democrats raised over the weekend. You mentioned 100 million. That's correct. Yeah. There's other groups that are raising millions more. That money is already being spent. Uh, Martha McSally, probably already toast. We don't know how many others are going to go down with her. So this is Mitch McConnell's last best chance. Him not confirming the judge doesn't change the fact that the money is being spent against those senators, right? 
Right. So, so the fight's that's already even on. More of a reason for him to push this through now. Um, and so it is now or never. It will happen now or probably never. Um, and so they're they're gonna jam it through. And this path is still pretty perilous because probably the worst thing that could happen, Charlie, is that they push this through, the Democrats raise all the money to use against Senate candidates, and the nominee collapses. Right? That mm-hmm. happens. Not every nominee is going to be Brett Ka- Kavanaugh and is going to be absolutely like belligerent against this onslaught that's coming. I, I don't know. I'm not familiar with all these judges, but that's a pretty tough thing to go through. And so there's a chance she's withdrawn, right? Mm. So that would be the worst possible outcome for McConnell. And so, you know, this is this is the high wire and they're they're going to do it. Because it's the only yeah. thing that matters. Well, and, 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 and as you point out, you know, this is their last best chance to win another prize before Trump potentially loses. And, and, and I think you made this case very strongly over the weekend. Why would they throw that away? Please don't be naive enough to think that digging up old clips and op eds of Republicans saying something else, some uh, other other years will persuade them. Otherwise, there are only two principles that play politics and power. And, you know, there was that I don't consider myself naive, but there was a moment where I thought, boy, there's no way they're going to wiggle out of these these statements, which are so definitive. But your point is, look, um, we, we are way past actually having any rules or any principles. This is it. This is the big prize. It's right in front of them. And this is what you know, and and they've spent the last four years basically, you know, carving out, you know, I mean, you know, cutting off pieces of their soul for for Donald Trump. Why would they not do this for, you know, the 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 ultimate the ultimate prize in their minds? Yeah, this is the only redeeming thing about Donald Trump's presidency. Right. I mean, if you I mean, and you have to think about this from Donald Trump's perspective as well. This is legacy making. Even if he loses, let's say he loses by 20 points. Probably not going to happen. Yeah. If he does, he gets this judge through he will be able to look anybody in the face for the rest of his life and say, I did more for Republicans on the Supreme Court than any other president. You no know, one okay, thought I would get two seats. I got three. Okay. Well, and he'll no, carry that with him forever. He 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 will. And and I think we need to this is still very, very fresh. And of course it's hard to make predictions. But I was thinking about that exactly that point, leaving Trump aside, but all of the Republicans who have gone along with all of this, that, that I think that there was a hope that we had that afterwards um, they would want to distance themselves from it. They would be embarrassed. They would be humiliated. They would want to turn the page. Um, but this will provide them the justification. This will provide the enablers and the rationalizers as well, which makes it, I think, somewhat harder to de- de-Trumpify the Republican Party because this is what people, they their memories will be very selective. They'll forget all of the other outrages, all of the corruption, all of the narcissism, you know, all of the authoritarianism, all of the deficits, the debt, all of that stuff. Um, and they'll focus on, on, the, on, the, on the courts. Okay, I want to go back to why the courts are so important. And I think you're right about this. But in terms of the intensity of the feeling, somebody asked me over the weekend, Ultimately, doesn't it all really come down to abortion? I mean, I mean, at least on on the ground, you know, Tim Alberta came here to Wisconsin and talked to people. And one of the justifications was Donald Trump judges. But why judges abortion? Most of the things that judges do and the courts do 
are rather arcane. Few of them have, you know, major public policy con- considerations. But so is 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 that the issue is, you know, I mean, in terms of the, the visceral political pull of it for the for for the right? Yeah, I, yes, it's no, an important right? issue, but I don't think it's I, I don't think it's really the main issue because it comes down to the fact that they want the hard decisions outsourced to a court that's stacked in their favor. And I, I really don't think that's something that's talked about because no one will actually admit no Republican will say, you know what, we're we're never going to re- have a replacement for Obamacare. We just want the court to repeal it for us. Right. Because otherwise you would have done the work. Right. Mitch McConnell has never done that work. He'd rather let someone else take the heat and he can take credit for stacking the judges. And so I do think this abortion debate, it is important, but it's a little bit of a fig leaf for something that is much mm-hmm. more difficult From to there. admit. Okay, so you, you, you're talking about, um, in your article, you're talking about the politics here, that if McConnell schedules a vote for the court before the election, which looks likely, that guarantees that his most vulnerable Republicans will have something else to talk about. The hearings will suck valuable time and attention away from Trump and Biden. Maybe Graham will rev up his outrage machine again for some more viral moments. Uh, Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris, will surely have time off the campaign trail to attend to her Senate Judiciary Committee duties too. Okay, so but there's a real downside to this. So the the as far as I can tell, the average time in normal circumstances from nomination to confirmation is about seventy days, sixty nine, seventy days. If Trump nominates someone new this weekend, that means that there will be 38 or 39 days before the election. This is in the midst of a presidential campaign, in the midst of a senatorial campaign. This, I mean, the the potential for this to be a shit show uh, becomes pretty high. So you have these vulnerable Republicans. So they're not only going to have to explain why they're rushing this through without waiting for the vote, you know, if you're Cory Gardner, um, why, why you need to rush this through right now, uh, but but also um, why you're willing to put the protection of pre-existing conditions at risk, uh, why you're willing to uh, put Roe versus Wade, uh, Wade at, at, at risk, um, why you want a Trumpian justice in place who might affect the outcome of the election. I see considerable risk for the Demo- for the Republicans there. I mean, this 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 could be may, maybe the the downside is worth it for them. I mean, maybe McConnell is saying, you know what? Yeah, I may. Th- this may kill my vulnerables. This may actually be a complete train wreck. But if I get the nomination through, as you pointed out, that's my legacy. It's done. It's worth it. But is there that downside politically? I don't see this as, a, as an unabashed um, uh, upside for Trump. Well, two parts. First, this is the hand that was dealt to them. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and opened up the seat. And, you know, I know there's a lot of emotion around that uh, among people who loved her so dearly. And it's sad that she's not getting the memorial that she deserved. But given that the seat opened up and Donald Trump has always run a base first strategy and the deal with the base was that we will look past everything. If you give us judges, he has to deliver a judge to keep that base with him for November. I don't think he has a choice. This is a great point. Yeah. I'm going to wait. We'll have a debate about this. All these people who have come to expect him to do this would be horrified. They would say, how can you pass this up? You are the guy. I mean, you don't, you don't care about anybody or anything and you're not going to give us 
this third seat, I, I don't think he has a choice politically. Okay, see, I think this is an important insight. And I think people on both sides of the aisle need to understand that there comes a point where once you've lit the fuse, you can't stop it, that things mm -hmm. become unstoppable, that even if they sat down and realized, wow, these polling numbers are absolutely horrible, we're going to lose these seats. Um, this is not a plus for us. Uh, look what's happening in the Democrats. The momentum is so great, they can't stop it. Just like, for example, on the left, I'm not sure what Joe Biden will do if this happens and the, you know, the, 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 the Democratic prairie fire for packing the court takes off. I mean, these these things some. Well, I mean, think about what happened with with Nancy Pelosi and impeachment. She tried to hold, you know, hold the line on that, hold the line, no impeachment, no impeachment. And after a while, it just became irresistible. There's something like that as as well. So even if they decide that maybe this is not the smartest play in the world, the you know, the, the rocks rolling downhill and there's nothing they can do about it. I mean, right. And you know. things would be different had Donald Trump cultivated a different base with his four years in office, had he ever made inroads, say, with suburban women and purple areas. But he clung to that base, you know, the Jerry Falwells of the world. And the world has changed dramatically since then. Um, but that is still his power base. The people who are turning out for him. Well, maybe not Jerry, but evangelical voters who expect him to do this for them. Um so, I, so, yeah. yeah, so you and I may have a different perspective on all of this, but yes, this this definitely revs up the Republican base. This will bring back the anti anti Trumpers who have been looking for an excuse mm -hmm. to vote for Donald Trump. I'm not sure how big a universe that is, but what I'm just sensing out there that in terms you mentioned suburban women. I have a feeling that this is going to uh, make it impossible for him to make any inroads into it. And this may be the one spark to turn to get younger people uh, to turn out in numbers they wouldn't have normally done for Joe Biden. So I, I don't see this. I mean, I, I think there's in, in terms of of the main election and you're right, his whole focus is on his base. So he's, he's got his base. He was probably always going to get his base, but his base isn't big enough to win this election. Yeah, and that, that would be that would be my argument. Yeah, I, I agree with you. This can completely backfire, but he has no other play, is what right. I'm saying. No, see, this is really good. This is, uh, I think that in his mind, in his world, he's created that no different play. Okay, explain to me what Mitt Romney's doing and thinking right now. Oh, goodness. He's hiding out still last time why? I checked. Okay, why? I think he has, he's probably trying to figure out what he can do that would make a difference. Right? Yeah. We know what he prob where he probably what he's probably thinking. You shouldn't do this now. We should wait for the next president. But how could he possibly make that argument in a way that would have any impact? And I, I don't think Mitch McConnell has much sway over him. I expect McConnell and McConnell's locking in votes right now, right? He knows yeah, he, he can lose three. He, you know, yeah. we've already got two, although Susan Collins, who knows what she's really doing. Um, you know, she's sort of setting up the idea. Well, I just don't want it before the election. Yeah. That doesn't, but, but she hasn't said do. she would vote. No, see, that's the key thing. Yeah, she hasn't, she said, hasn't said if, that. If Mitch and McConnell who, calls her bluff, what will she do? How will she vote? Yeah. I mean, it depends on, and who's she going to depend on to save her seat? Um, she's not a fundraising power player in her own right. If she wants any chance of winning her seat, she's going to need the, the support of super PACs that are controlled by Mitch McConnell, right? And so he will call the shots there. But at the same time, he may be cutting her loose early to say, you know, we'll do what we can. I know I can lose you as long as I lock in everybody else. 
Um, and I, I have a lot of questions and we need to game out what would happen if they try to do a vote in the lame duck, because I think, I think that's the worst outcome of all. Yeah, I, I think, so. I, I think so. I think so too. But I want to go back to your, your sort of main point for people to understand why some of these senators are doing what they are, what they are doing. If, if the president nominates a solid conservative justice, yeah, becomes, we also have to talk about who's it going to be, right? Okay, Mitch, well, Mitt yeah. Romney may want to see who it's going to be. Well, you that, have Tom Willis hey, out there saying, I'm going to support the nominee else. before he or she is even named. Yeah, he'd which vote for, kind for, of for Ivanka. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he he for, and everybody would vote for Ted Cruz just to get him out of the Senate. But <laughs> but I mean, this is the one thing. I mean, even, even the, the guys like, you know, Jeff Flake had a hard time voting against Kavanaugh because I think in their mind they did the test. If this had been appointed by a President Bush or a President uh, Rubio or a President Scott Walker or a President, uh, you know, any of these other presidents, you know, would, what would my position have been? And so there's not a lot of philosophical disagreement about having a conservative justice. So this is a hard one, because if you vote no on, on this, you basically are excommunicating yourself from the conservative movement going forward, particularly if this is the legacy. So maybe that's what uh, Mitt Romney's got in the back of his mind. Mitt Romney may do the opposite. He may say, well, I want to see who the nominee is and come forward and say, I'm not voting on tactics. I'm voting on the person. Yes. Correct. Well, which is a good, would be yeah. a reasonable argument to make. So Although a lot of people won't like it. Who do you think it's going to be? Well, I think it's between Amy, Amy. Coney Barrett, who's the favorite. Right. Among, you Strong know, the, the power players that run this. But I've got to think that Donald Trump is going to get all these women into his office. And this is what tactically they need to think about. Put him through that interview and think about who is capable of pulling a Kavanaugh, mm. right? Because this election could come down to that woman's face in her moment in a hearing, whether she melts down or whether she dominates and wins everybody over and gets people cheering, fill that seat, right? That's the most important factor here. Who is that person and how are they going to carry it forward? Because the whole weight of the world will be on her shoulders the moment she's named. And so we can talk about who has the best credentials and who's the best on paper, but until you see them perform, none of it matters. So the other name that's been floated um, besides Amy Coney Barrett, and obviously, you know, for the last 48 hours, everybody's assuming it was going to be her. She's from Notre Dame. She's on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, very strongly pro-life, Catholic, et, et cetera. Uh, the other name that's been floated out here is uh, a Florida judge, uh, Barbara Lagoa, who I guess used to be on the uh, state Supreme Court and is now on a uh, federal judge. So the, the play there is that, that that Florida Republicans are saying you need to name her in order to um, help your chances to win the state of Florida. So this adds a different dilemma. She is Cuban-American. So you add she's an Hispanic woman, but it's also from Florida. The sort of the cynical play is that Donald Trump has to win the state of Florida. But imagine having the hearings the week before the election when everybody's going, you've named somebody because you've named somebody from Florida because you want to win Florida. I could see that appealing very strongly to him. However, I think that's going to sort of add to the kind of eye-rolling cynicism of the process. Yeah, and the on the merits that we just discussed, I think Trump would prefer her, right? Who? Because of, uh, is it Lagoa? Lagoa, Lagoa. Lagoa yeah. Yeah, I want to make sure I'm saying her name yeah. correctly. Because 
he would think she's a minority. She brings Florida. I don't want to deal with the religious kookiness that's going to come with Amy Coney Barrett, which you've already seen come out, which I you know find incredibly distasteful. I think Trump would want to avoid that, but none of it matters. I think it's going to come down to the interviews that he's holding this week. And he's going to look at them and see who is the best to cast as the character who can get through the potential assassination that's coming. Yeah. You you, you know that what he's not going to do is, is sit there and say, who is going to be the best Supreme Court justice? Who is going to uphold the rule of law? He's going to think in terms of that television show and what's in it for him. If he, if he thinks he's got a triple play woman, Cuban American, Florida person, he might go with that with uh, with that person. Because really, for the next month, this woman is going to be his running mate. It's not Mike Pence. It's hmm. going to be Trump Lagoa or Trump Barrett. Take your pick. Now, you mentioned something about the religious element with with Amy Amy Coney Barrett. Let me t- tell you the, sort of the flip side of what what Trump might like. Um, she's very strongly Catholic, and he. I've already made it clear that I think there's real potential downside for the Republicans in this, but there's also a risk for Democrats. And the Democratic trap is to try to make Amy uh, Coney Barrett's religion a negative because this will backfire badly. This will, you know, the the whole the dogma lives strongly. And you comment from Dianne Feinstein um, was it was a was a major blunder, implying somehow that she's crazy for being a Catholic this is this is the kind of thing that causes the right to rally around. My advice to to people on the left would be, you know, go very easy on the kooky religious stuff, because that that will portray you in the worst possible light that you're the elitism, the contempt for religion um, that needs to be restrained. It, it probably won't be, though, will it? No. And I was I I was disturbed by hearing what Chuck Schumer had to say over the weekend. He did a press conference with AOC, which is interesting in itself. Um, And he said something to the effect of, um, you know, she's wrong because Amy Coney Barrett stands for everything, stands against everything that RBG supported. And I took a step back and I said, how can you say that? Because in my mind, RBG stood for, women asserting themselves in the workplace, being able to get ahead while still being a mother and a wife. And you look at Amy Coney Barrett and she has an incredible legal career as a mother of seven, right? A mother of seven children. And she is a potential nominee for the highest court in the land. And I look at her and say, oh my God, what a testament to hard work and family. And you got to have a husband that supports you in the way that RBG's husband supported her to get that far. And so I, I, I find that just to be really disheartening to think that that would be an automatic talking point from Schumer that could forecast how ugly this could get and how women like me would be inclined to rally around Amy Coney Barrett yeah. and say, no, you have this wrong. She, you know, she benefited from the inroads that RBG made. And I think she would be the first to acknowledge that in a hearing. So, because I always work these conversations around to Wisconsin, um, the story that came to mind over the weekend was the state Supreme Court election that we had here. And the the liberal, the names aren't important here, but the, the liberal moderate candidate was uh, overwhelmingly favored to win the election, uh, especially 
after um, the media and various other activist groups went after the conservative candidate for being involved with a Christian school and implying that there was somehow something wrong with his religious faith. And he pushed back and said, look, this is religious, religious bigotry. You're coming after me. Uh, you're coming after me because I've been involved with a conservative Christian organization because I am a conservative Christian. This won't affect my my job as a judge. But the left actually thought that they were going to use his religion, his you know kooky religion against him. And it it dramatically backfired. And he won an election that no one expected that he was going to win. And in retrospect, it was that's that's what turned out the base, that sense of, you know, anti-Christian bigotry, which, you know, is been cultivated very strongly in the age of, of, of Trump, convincing Christians that they are under siege, that there are, that there are people who hate them and dislike them. Uh, the Trumpists will be very, very comfortable with that. So Democrats, I think, have to really you know, look themselves in the mirror and think, you know, do you really want to go there on that? I have to tell you, I, I'm somewhat impressed in the last 24 hours by their message discipline in focusing on the threat to the Affordable Care Act and protections on pre-existing conditions rather than going after the culture war. But again, uh, early days so far. Yeah, I think the smarter Democrats are trying to frame it that way, which also tells me they realize they have to make this about election issues and not about personal issues of the nominee. No, I, and, I, and I think that's very, very, that's very, very important. So I'm still trying to think through how fast this, this takes place. The president makes a nomination and then we have to have all of the background uh, investigations, the hearings, the vote in basically five weeks. And this will be five weeks during which there will be presidential debates. There will be those early voting. Um, I just, I mean, this is, you know, that, that's what makes 2020 so amazing. It's just like, you know, if, you, if your bingo card is full of like, well, what, what is the other disruptive thing? So you, you mentioned 2016. And, and obviously the, the, the big game changer was James Comey coming out and saying he was investigating Hillary Clinton again. And that clearly affected the outcome of the election. Do you think this has, does this change the fundamentals of this election? Uh, does, I mean, does, because up until Friday night around eight or nine o'clock, Joe Biden was on track to win this election. He was uh, consistently ahead. The poll numbers were stable, you know, eight, nine points ahead. Has everything changed now Monday morning? I'm not sure it's changed as much as it's accelerated things in the way that it has had such an influence on the Democratic base. And this this drives the enthusiasm up even higher. And, you know, you saw that in the fundraising. Um, I, I think there's a very likely scenario where Mitch McConnell gets his nominee but loses the Senate over this. Okay, that's that's kind of where I was I was going on this. Yeah, I okay. So put it in perspective, because I mean, you're a you, you're a political veteran. A hundred million dollars raised in three days by Act Blue is absolutely mind blowing. I mean, that's that's I, I I don't remember any parallel moment like that. And again, I think it's possible to argue that money is overrated in a campaign like this. But that's not just money. I mean, that just shows you the way that that people have been engaged on all this. There was another survey over the weekend that's something like people in the upper 80, 80 
80 some percent, 88 percent of voters were very, very interested in this year's election. I mean, the turnout this year is going to be absolutely through the roof. And that's, again, one of those variables that, that it's hard for us to get our heads around what what how that's going to play. And it broadens the question to something bigger than just a binary choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in a way that goes down to these Senate races. Um, you know, Susan Collins was already in a terrible position. I mean, Lindsey Graham, South Carolina, he's in a dead heat. That is unheard of. Um, and then there's more focus on Lindsey Graham just being a pure political opportunist now more than ever in that state. And so, I, you know, I it, it's just very interesting to see how this plays out because Lindsey Graham doesn't have another choice, but what he's going to do uh, puts him in a position that he never thought he would be in electorally. Okay. So you, you used to work with Jim DeMint, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So, so you, you know, South Carolina politics, at least in, at least indirectly. Uh, is this for real? I mean, I mean, part, part of me is going, okay, every election, there's that Lucy and the football thing where they'll say, well, this person's vulnerable or everything. Look, uh, Mitch McConnell is not vulnerable in Kentucky. Democrats, save your money. Amy McGrath is not going to beat him. Right. But the Lindsey Graham, to imagine Lindsey Graham being defeated in, for reelection by a Democrat in South Carolina. I have to say that up until a few days ago, I, I kind of assumed that some of those polls were outliers. Yeah. I, I, well, Lindsey Graham is not Mitch McConnell. Uh, Lindsey Graham's political power in the state was always much different than Jim DeMitt's, which was much more grassroots. You know, Lindsey Graham was more of like the Chamber of Commerce guy, hmm. you know, that had the the old boy Republican network going in his favor, which I think is crumbling nationally. Right. I mean, look, look at the Chamber of Commerce. They're they're making the unheard of move in this election to support Democrats. <laughs> I mean, that 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 to me tells you how much the environment has changed in that traditional Republican networks are looking elsewhere because they see the writing on the wall um, and that this, you know, sort of Trumpian experiment may be coming into an end and they need to go elsewhere if they want to advance their goals. Okay. Getting way ahead of ourselves, but we can do that because it's a podcast. So l let's say that they, they, they go ahead and they ram this through. Um, there was a backlash. Um, the Democrats do take control in, in the election. Do you think a democratic majority would, and I'll, you know, let's run through, would, would pack the court by, by which I mean, expand the number of, of, of judges on the court. Would they abolish the filibuster and would they admit DC and Puerto Rico to the union in order to change the balance of power in the United States Senate? Would they do those things? Do you think? Of those three, I think elimination of the legislative filibuster is probably the most likely uh, because that's something that's been percolating for a while. And it's something that you see Democratic senators talking about, introducing legislation about. These other two things have really just come up in the last week or so. I know liberal activists have talked about it for a long time, but I don't I don't see people advocating those as real things they want to do, least of which Joe Biden. Uh, it was interesting that he shut the door on that, uh -huh. um, and which, which I thought was 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 prudent at this point. I mean, who knows what will happen next year? But I could certainly imagine a Biden presidency if if the first three months involves uh, an attempt to pack the courts, that could derail his entire presidency. I mean, that that could be the 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 Democrats uh, overreaching that would destroy their agenda. 
I mean, look yeah. what happened. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt tried this, and this was the worst defeat that FDR faced in the 1930s, his attempt to pack the court. So that's... And this just gets back to my other point of, no, is the solution really to just go to the courts and everything? At some point, if Joe Biden is an institutionalist and he does want to reform all these things and have trust in government, he can't go down this path. I mean, we'll see what he really means if he's elected. I don't know. But if we're just going to keep fighting about the courts and solve all our problems there, then why why have a Congress, right? I mean, what, let's just get rid of it and just go before the court to solve all our problems. And, and this, to me, that's not the answer. You can't, if you want to have a powerful government that people trust and is actually useful, you have to do the hard work of consensus building. This is why I've, I've never liked getting rid of the filibuster for judges, for SCOTUS, for anything, because it allows Congress to avoid the hard work of reaching consensus. And without consensus, you will never have a unified country. You're just not going to get it. So what else should we talk about today? What, what else are you keeping your uh, eye open for? I, I have to say, I'm, I spend some time on, on Twitter trying to get more confirmation of this story from the New York Post that the Department of Justice has designated New York City and Portland, Oregon as what, like anarchist havens and therefore defunding their police? Is, is, is this a thing? So is, is Bill Barr just doing whatever he wants now? Right. Yeah, I mean, but but I mean, really, it's it's one of the best talking points Republicans have is the Democrats want to defund the police. But if this is true, then Bill Barr and Donald Trump have literally are literally trying to defund the police in major American cities. Is this is this real? You're asking for things to be consistent and logical again. No, I we had I'm, to stop. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> um, I will say the article <laughs> in The Atlantic. Um, that came out this morning where Andrew Weissman is coming out with a book talking oh, about yeah. how Robert Mueller dropped the ball essentially on the Russia investigation. This is something that's been percolating a while. A lot of these justice types have been coming out and saying some more loudly than others is that, wow, Mueller really messed this thing up. Yeah. And I just, I feel like this is going to come back at some point. It just, my spidey sense is up about it. In the fact that they, you know, not only writing books, but everyone keeps trying to say, you know, this this thing is still there. Um, you know, we didn't go through obstruction. I was listening to Peter Strzok the other day talk about all the problems he saw with the investigation in terms of how they siloed all the individual investigations. Like, you know, this person went after Cohen, this person went after Manafort, and they never, ever got together and compared notes. Hmm. Um to draw any wider conclusions. And so I just find all that extremely bothersome and it feels like that's going somewhere quietly in the background. Yeah, this 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 book will be will be significant um at least for those of us that follow this carefully because Andrew Weissman was uh, was a major player inside this investigation. So it's one thing for somebody on the outside to throw rocks, but I think there's been that growing sense that how did Bob Mueller blow this as dramatically as he did? Uh, so yeah, I, I can't, I can't wait to read that. That was something that I immediately saw George Packer has this piece in the Atlantic about that. I want to, I want to watch that. Uh, the other story, and this, this may seem like a complete digression for some of our listeners, but the, the what's been going on with the 1619 project, and this is not a binary choice that you side with Trump or you sided with the 1619 project at the New York times, but there's been this debate over whether or not you know, the the New York Times, this is the series, of course, on, on, on slavery, had declared that 1619 was the true founding 
of America, not 1776. And, you know, a lot of critics seized on that, you know, and we can have a debate about all of this. But the rather strange behavior of uh, the the editor of this saying, no, 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 we never said this. When people on Twitter are writing, look, you said this over and over and over again, and now you're trying to drop that down the memory hole. Look, I mean, I'm, I don't want to you know, have a digression from the other things that we're talking about here. But the, the reality is, is that there is a permanent record out there. Um, if you said something, you can't pretend you didn't say it in the past. It's, there's a certain level of, of sort of credibility and honesty that is enforced in the new in the new world. And the way the Times is handling this and the way that 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 the lead editor is handling it is just, is just it's just bizarre. And but again, it's not a binary choice. This is not to side with with Donald Trump, with his, you know, patriotic uh, commission or any of, the, of those. So what things. was so, that? I mean, I, I sort of paid attention to it in the back of my mind. But so we're going to have a new education curriculum based on American exceptionalism? Is this common core? No, it, will, it, 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 it will go nowhere. As, as <laughs> yeah. you well know, it will go absolutely nowhere. You know, look, I mean, I want people to love America, but in order to love America, you also have to know the actual history, um, warts and all. And there's a lot of things that you need to confront with, with all of that. And that's a balancing act. And the unfortunate thing is that in the current age right now, people aren't into nuance and balancing acts, right? I mean, they, they, they want, they're, they're more interested. We've developed a taste for propaganda rather than for uh, nuanced, balanced things, which is unfortunate, but maybe we can move past all of this. So, Amanda Carpenter, uh, thank you for this analysis, because I think it's important for people to understand, you know, why these Republicans cannot basically can't help themselves doing what they're doing right now. Um, and when you you did convince me, I was thinking that over the weekend that that the smart play was going to be make the announcement and then have the debate after the elect. I mean, have the vote after the election. But I think you've made a, a compelling case why, even if they knew that was the smart play, they won't go with it. Well, I just real quick, I will disagree with anyone who thought that was the smart play because mm. you would have the prospect that Donald Trump is rejected by voters. You have four, five Republican senators who lost their seat. And now all of a sudden that those people who have been rejected by the voters would be voting on one of the most important appointments in their career. I, that is just preposterous on its Yeah, face. But they would do Sorry, it. Sorry, other friends. Hey, but, but they would do it. You that, know, that they would, would for, that for would exactly the, the reason. destructive thing possible. I agree. It would be destructive, yeah. but, but, but again, using your logic, they would still do it. This would be their out the door. Here's my legacy. So, you know, Corey Gardner and all those folks. Yeah, they were defeated, but, but look what I left behind. I left behind. Right, and, and, you know, out, huh? <laughs> we've seen what else they were, are willing to do, how many other norms they've been willing to shatter. There's really no basis to think that they would go, we lost this election. The good and decent thing for us to do is not to have this vote. No, these people have told us who they are over and over again. They would absolutely do it in, in, a, in a lame duck session. But I agree with you. I think they're going to try to do it before the election. Although I'm not sure everyone has fully has fully taken on board what that timeline is going to look like, um, you know, pushing Whoever this Whoever it is going to have a short time to prep. Holy moly. Holy moly. All right. Amanda Carpenter, thank you so much. Uh, you can read uh, Amanda's piece in the in the Bulwark along with all of our other coverage over the weekend of this, which is comprehensive. And, and each piece does not necessarily agree with every other piece. So, Amanda, thanks for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this 
all over again. There are just six weeks until Election Day. 